0: If you have Bibles or whatever device you happen to be using, I would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And before I read the text, just kind of a reminder of what we're doing. Before I left, we started a series, a series that I titled, Why the Church? In other words, what is the purpose of the church? Why in the world does God have this? institution, this entity, this organism, this organization, this people here called the church. And what we're doing is I'm dividing this into three parts, and the first part is to look at some foundational passages that speak of what we are terming the missional church. That is the nature and purpose of the church. In other words, the church, by definition, is missional. Put it this way. If the church is not missional, it is not church. It may be a great organization. It might be a great club. You go to a club, you go to a country club, play golf, whether it's at Reynolds or any of these places, and you pay your dues, you get to play golf. You get to have dinner at some nice places. You get to do all stuff. That is a club. You pay your dues, and you do some fun things. The church is not a club. The church is the body of Christ that we learned in looking at Genesis chapter 12 and the missional call of Abraham, something I would call the Old Testament Great Commission. The church is founded on the promise and given the vocation and the call, all nations of the earth shall be blessed through you. That means we have the vocation of bringing the good news to the world. That's why we're here. That's why suffering still is going on because the full number of God's family has not yet been brought into the fold. God is still calling sinners from every tongue and tribe and nation and language into his family through the ministry of the local church. We have been given the vocation to bring healing and renewal and peace to the community around us. Friends, that is God's plan A, and he doesn't have a plan B. Now, I don't know if, I, you know, I love sports. You all know I love sports. See, proof of grace being what founded this church and sets this church apart and all that is you accepted this Yankee into your southern roots and southern home and all that, and you know I'm a New York Yankees fan. And I sit and I love to, I love April to October, because I get to watch the Yankee games. But you want to know what I am? And I know I'm mixing metaphors and mixing sports here. I'm an armchair quarterback. So, yes, if you heard me last night, it was me on the sofa going, Brian Cashman, why won't you make that trade? What are you doing? That's your strategy? You've got to be kidding me. And I picked that in the Yankees, won 14 to 1 last night, so I shouldn't have been complaining, you know, but I confessed my sins this morning. God has a strategy, and that is he's given his bride, his people, his treasured possession, a vocation to live out the gospel in such a way that we bring healing and peace and renewal to Lake Oconee. That's why we're here. Now, this morning, one of the foundational passages that talk about God's strategy is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. For the next several weeks, we're going to look at some of the opening passages in the book of Acts. We're not going through all 28 chapters, but we're going to look at a couple of texts out of chapters 1 and 2 that prepare the church for mission, the reason we're here. You have your devices pulled up, you're on that Wi-Fi, you've done what you need to do, you ready? Let's hear the text from Acts chapter 1. For the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses." Friends, this is the word of the Lord given by the triune God of love because he loves us. Okay, the author of the book of Acts, when it says right there in verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, we have a clue. The author is the evangelist, Luke. The same writer of the gospel of Luke. So in other words, we have a sequel here. Okay, no, this is not Top Gun Maverick followed Top Gun, but like you have all of the movies, I mean, I looked at the movies that are playing now. We've got Top Gun, sequel. We've got Jurassic World, sequel. You know, when is Spider-Man Part eight coming out? Or Superman Part 22 coming out? Okay? Here is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. So thus, as our text begins, he says in the first book, oh, yeah. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, even in the first verses of the Gospel of Luke, he's saying, this is only the beginning of the story. I'm only giving you chapter 1. The story continues. And now we get to Acts, and here's the continuation of the story. Acts is the sequel to Luke. Now, who was Luke? Luke, we learn, was a physician. He was a companion of the Apostle Paul. According to most commentators, the book of Acts was probably written around A.D. 60. And they say around that date because there was a monumental event that happened in A.D. 64, this great fire that happened. And the emperor there was a man by the name of Nero who happened to blame and persecute Christians for that particular fire. Interesting in the book of Acts, Nero's not mentioned. So most people think Acts was probably written before that. We learn that the purpose Of the book of Acts was to record a true historical development of the early church, focusing on the progress of the gospel, why the church is here. To take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, like concentric circles, Jerusalem its center. For us, we could consider that Putnam County, Greene County, Morgan County, our Jerusalem. Judea and Samaria, the southeast of the United States, other places in the the United States, to the ends of the earth. Yes, we are to have a global missions emphasis. Why? God's plan A. And say with me, He doesn't have a plan B. The book of Acts gives us the historical record of the development of the gospel. Now, we also learn that a major theme of this is the kingdom of God. The text tells us that by many proofs he presented himself alive to them. So in other words, the kingdom of God based on his resurrection during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. N.T. Wright commentating on this passage says, "Jesus's transformed body, Jesus' resurrected body, is now the beginning of God's new creation. The resurrection of the Jesus who died under the weight of the world's evil is now the foundation of the new world, God's new world. N.T. Wright titles the book of Acts, The Deeds and Teachings of King Jesus, Part 2. What we are called to do, Jesus is enthroned as king. He has inaugurated his kingdom. That means he's only begun it. We are called, this is verse 8, and this is where we're going to kind of camp this morning. Verse 8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is enthroned as king, the world's true Lord. Here's our vocation. Why the church? To be heralds. You know what a herald is? A herald is a messenger. We don't produ- the herald does not produce the results. The herald does not necessarily have to say, oh, I'm a great herald, I produce great results. Or, boy, I really stink as a herald, no results. No. The herald simply announces the good news. Our job is to be witnesses announcing the good news to the world. Our Jerusalem, our Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, this morning, what we want to do is we want to look briefly at Jesus preparing his apostles, and guess what? Preparing us for this vocation, for this mission. So, let's do so under three headings. Yes, I've been gone for three weeks. That was a lengthy introduction. I could say I'm sorry, not really sorry. I told you a lot of pent up energy. Three headings a missional church is community based, a missional church is empowered by the Spirit. And a missional church is always focused outward. Spirit empowerment, community basis, movement mindset. Those are three characteristics of the missional church. First of all, the community basis. In verse 8, when Jesus says, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses, very important that you is second person plural. That means the community The apostles, the church, are to be witnesses, will receive the power of the Spirit. Jesus' program is for the community. He is building a new society. He's recreating a new humanity, a city set on a hill, an alternative or a contrast community to reflect and be an agent of his kingdom. George Hunsberger, in his book, Missional Church, speaks of the church or community representing the reign or kingdom of God. He says the church represents the divine reign as its sign and foretaste and agent and instrument. He says it is a sign and foretaste of God's redeeming purpose for the world and as agent and instrument representing God's reign in an active sense. By its very existence, the church brings what is hidden into view as sign and into experience as foretaste. That means our job, our vocation, we bear witness by making visible, making seen what people in the community can't see the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, what living under the lordship of Christ is all about. We make visible the invisible kingdom by our lives, by our speech, by our focus, by our priorities, by our witness. Let me ask a question. Are we a church that's for or a church that's against? There are many churches that are against things. Many churches that I'm afraid are reflecting our culture by fighting culture wars. We're against this. We're against this. We're going to take a stand and be against this. I'm convinced Jesus calls us to be a church for. For truth. This doesn't compromise truth in any way, shape, or form. For justice, for love, for care, for healing. And by being a church that's for, we are making visible the invisible kingdom of God. Now, how do we go about doing this? We need to understand, first of all, community is a very hot topic today. All sorts of books and literature on the topic. And it's not merely a theoretical problem. We all know something of the joys and difficulties of community. We know the sweetness of being loved and embraced, working together on a mission, working together for a cause, laying down our own personal agenda for the good of someone else, the power it gives us to focus on a task or mission together. We all, let's see, do you remember the show Cheers from way back when? Don't we love to come to a place where... Everybody knows your name. We know something of the joy of community, but we also know something of the pain and sorrow of community. We know something of the the loneliness and the isolation, the pain of being alone, walking into a room wondering, will anyone know my name? Will anyone remember who I am? The alienation of a lack of community, the fear and shame and vulnerability, how about the commitment that's involved in community? This is an intensely practical issue. It is also an intensely theological issue, a very important issue from a theological or discipleship perspective. We are built for community, our very essence is relational because we are made in the image of God, and God's very essence is relational. I'll get you memorizing scripture, and I'll have you doing the easiest beginning of a verse possible—four words. You all can do it. In the beginning, God. Genesis 1, the beginning of verse 1. Who is this God? That in the we know all the things he does—he creates and he forms and is all this. But in the beginning, God, we learn that this God is tri-personal. He's Trinity. Tim Keller introduces us in his book, The Reason for a God, to a term from the early Greek church. The term is called perichoresis, meaning to dance or to flow around. It's the roots of our word choreography. He says, the Trinity, God is in essence relational. And quoting C.S. Lewis, he says, when the early Greek Christians spoke of perichoresis in God, they meant that each divine person harbors the others at the very center of his being. In Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing nor a static thing, not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The pattern of this three-personal life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. Do you hear that? Community is at the center of reality. Being relational is the essence of being human because you're made in the image of God. We live in an age in a world of expressive individualism. Let me be me. Freedom is all about me. Where God, we're going against the grain of reality. God has created us to be together. God has created us to be a family. Whether you're married or widowed or single or whatever your condition, your family is meant to be the church of Jesus Christ. One of the ways we exemplify the gospel and make it visible is our life of community. That's the first point. The community basis of this vocation. Second, the spirit of. Empowerment, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. The Spirit brings power. As Paul says later to his protege disciple Timothy, and I have to quote this all the time to myself, because whether you know it or not, I struggle with fear. I struggle with anxiety. I struggle with what will they think of me? Anybody else struggle with those kinds of things? Am I alone in this? I doubt it. Paul says to Timothy, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. God's love has been shed abroad, poured into our hearts. This is a reality of being a Christian, Romans 5 says, through the Holy Spirit whom has he, he has given us. And what kind of spirit is that? That is a spirit of power, a spirit of love, a spirit of self discipline. And what is that power to be used for? It is to propel us outward in witness. And we say, witness to what and for what? The answer is the renewal of the whole world. We are witnessing to the kingship, the resurrection, and the kingdom of Christ. And the kingdom of God is the renewal of the whole world through the entrance. Of supernatural forces. The Word, the Spirit, and the church, the place where the Word and the Spirit dwell. The Spirit not only empowers us, but also gifts us, gifts his church to renew the world and establish his kingdom. Now, what are some of the implications for this? First of all, how do we appropriate this power? How do we receive it? It says, you will receive power. How do we do this? This is intensely simple, intensely practical, and intensely hard at the same time. The simple answer, and yet the hard answer, is prayer. You receive it through prayer. I included this quote in your reflection. So you have it, you could take it home with you. No little encouragement there, right? It's a quote from Jack Miller in his book, Powerful Evangelism for the Powerless. And he writes, God provides a means for us to appropriate the Spirit's power in our lives and a means for non-Christians to be prepared to receive the word. That means is prayer. Prayer breaks down our self-sufficiency. Prayer is our door of access to the Heavenly Father through which, as his adopted sons and daughters, we receive grace to do his work. And what is his work? Bring renewal, healing, and peace, the good news of the gospel to our Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's the work we've been given. And the power is the power of the Spirit. And that word power, same word that's used in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that says the gospel is the power of God. It's the Greek word dunamis from which we get our English word dynamite. Friends, do you believe that you have the dynamite of God? We will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Do you realize that's why I say the hope for the world is not a program, not an agenda, not politics, not an organization. The hope for the world is the church Renewed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we're not gospel centered, we're not a church. If we're not missional, we're not a church. And we have the very dunamis of God to enable. None of you have to do this in your own power. Do you know how freeing that is? This is not a pep talk. I'm telling the men sang. We need you guys at Carlton, Ken, get back up here and sing Wonderful Grace of Jesus. We need round two. This is the dunamis of God, this is what you have. Friends, let's begin to possess possessions. You possess the Holy Spirit, he's been given to you. But I'm too weak, I I can't share Christ with my neighbor. Oh, only the Holy Spirit, the dunamis of God. Wait a second, what if they ask me a question I don't know? You're free, the power is given to you, say you don't know, it's okay. Might be an incredible witness, to not be so proud and say, I don't know. Community basis, spirit empowerment. Lastly, movement mindset and outreach focus. The remainder of this verse says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Friends, we need to recognize the gospel is a living power. It constantly moves and infiltrates our hearts, minds and lives, so that the gospel may reach all the cultures of the world, transforming them according to God's kingdom purposes." See, do you believe that? Do you believe that the gospel can change anyone? That there is no one that is outside the potential reach of the gospel. There is no one who's so down and out that he's unreachable. There is no sin so great that it can't be reached with the blood of Jesus Christ, can't be reached with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. No shame, no isolation, no failure, so great that it can't be plunged into the heart of Jesus Christ. The grace of Jesus Christ is wonderful, does take away all our sins. But what hinders us See, what hinders us from having this kind of movement mindset, an outward orientation? Well, look at the text, because this text tells us there are a couple things that can hinder the church from its outward focus. Things that can be good things, but can become distractions. First of all, verse 6. The apostles are hearing this. They're talking. They're having this 40-day... Wouldn't you love to have a 40-day seminar with the resurrected Jesus, by the way? Can you think to yourself, what questions would I ask? What would I ask Jesus in this 40-day seminar? He's speaking about the kingdom. Here's what the apostles asked him, so this will tell you. And I call this a wrong priority. They said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, the resurrected Jesus is talking about this. Remember how Luke ended his first volume? Chapter 24, doing things like having breakfast with him, walking through walls, talking with a couple of the brothers on the road to Emmaus, their hearts burning as he's talking about the gospel and what happened and stuff like that. And there, and this is wrong priority, and we can have wrong priority. I'm going to say something very dangerous for a second. Don't throw tomatoes or water bottles at me but they're more interested in making Israel great again. Wrong priority. They may be right in certain things. We could be right in our policies and stuff, but it's not priority of the church. And Jesus tells them that right away. I have a good friend, Ray Cortez down in Florida, and he used to tell his people, he would sit there and say, if Jesus were to walk in the sanctuary, He would be wearing neither a MAGA hat or a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. He would be wearing a shirt that says, I am the king. One of the things that can hinder us from our witness is misplaced priorities. Fighting culture wars, wrong priority, looking for power, wrong priority. Second wrong priority. Look with me at verse 10 11. I'll call this wrong focus. Jesus gives them the commission, gives them the vocation. And then verse 10 says, while they were gazing into heaven, two men stood by them in white robes. So they're more than likely angels. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? In other words, get busy. Jesus just gave you a commission. Why are you heaven gazing? Jesus will return. You've been left here on earth to do a job. To bring healing, renewal, and peace to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You're busy gazing into heaven. Get busy. And the first thing that they did, we'll learn this next week when we look at Acts 1, 12 to 26. See, I'm hoping you'll come back next week. Is they prayed. The first step to preparing for mission and preparing their hearts for mission was prayer. They were together, and they were praying. Why? Because they knew the power was not from themselves. The power was from God, and they were praying for that power. They were waiting for that power. Friends, we need to have a mindset of thinking on a larger kingdom scale. God has us here because he's not done reaching Lake Oconee. That doesn't mean we are to take people from one church and ship them to another church. That's called sheep sorting. The Great Commission is not go and sheep sort, sort sheep. I'll try to say that three times fast this afternoon. That is not the mission or vocation of the church. We are called to be witnesses and be used by Christ bear witness to redemption, to renewal, healing, and peace to those who don't know it. To Lord willing, and this is what we pray for the power for, to see people go from death to life, to be converted, to go from hell to heaven, to go from a life where they, they may have all the riches in the world. They may think they have everything, but if you don't have Christ, you really have nothing. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? Why do you spend all your labor? You work, and you work, and you work, and you work, and you work. You're on a treadmill, and it does not satisfy. Jesus is saying, get off the treadmill. Be yoked to me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. The movement described in verse 8 is a global mindset. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Can you imagine... Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church filled with three to 400 people. Converts from the area, coming from death to life. Big enough that we have to, hmm, plant another church. Send where people gripped so much by the vocation of the gospel that 75 to 100 of you are saying like Isaiah, here am I, send me. I'll go to Eatonton, I'll go to Greensboro, I'll go to Madison, let's plant another church. And then we grow to three to 400 again. And we do what? We plant another church. And maybe we partner with other churches in the United States. And maybe even globally to plant other churches. Because the gospel is moving. It's a living power moving from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we say, that's why we're here. That's why we exist. I know this is a big humbling and adventurous vision but how big and how great is our God how big is our God that we worship that we serve that we love who has called us let's get on the whitewater rapids and have some fun what do you think let's pray